This podcast is brought to you by WeTransfer, the world's largest file transfer service. Since 2009, WeTransfer's free platform has been enabling creative thinkers around the world. Visit wetransfer.com today and see for yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Welcome to What About, the podcast about how initial ideas develop into the fully formed stories we find in magazines. I like to imagine the writer at the editorial meeting leaning forward to convince his colleagues of an idea, saying, What About? Each episode of What About? looks at one story from one magazine. We open with me talking to the editor about the origins of the story, and then we get to hear it, read in full. We're focusing on the individual story, that essential building block of magazine making, and the editorial work that goes into creating and finessing it. For this episode of What About? I'm joined by Christopher Eisenberg, editor of large format sports magazine Victory Journal. Based in Brooklyn, Victory avoids the clichés of its subject, looking beyond superstars and statistics to focus on the participants and spectators and their relationship with sport. Welcome, Christopher. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, Good to see you. Looking forward to hearing about the particular piece in hand, but first of all, let's have a general chat. Just tell us a little bit about Victory. We call ourselves the Journal of Sport and Culture, and we sit at the intersection of sport and kind of everything else that we're interested in, photography, design, fine art, travel, crime. But maybe if somebody was thinking of a sports magazine, they'll be thinking of kind of fan pictures and and statistics and that kind of sport. But that's the kind of sport it isn't, right? Yeah, particularly statistics and kind of opinionating it says in our manifesto although i'm not sure that's that's a word that we're 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 founded against that and it's meant to be you know more feature-based and more human interest focused and you know as i said to take sport as a jumping off point to all the other things that we're interested in how did the piece come about can you remember the first kind of um flash of inspiration yeah it actually was inspired by a podcast and in general, I'm not... That's kind of nice symmetry to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're coming full circle. I'm not usually the biggest fan of being inspired by other media, other magazines, and, you know, it sometimes starts to feel cannibalistic, like when everyone is just being inspired by each Mm -hmm. other versus being inspired by more firsthand experience in the world. But um, this one... We, we owe the inspiration to 99% Invisible and, and Roman Mars, who did a, it's like a 16-minute episode about the history of the mascot. It's excellent. It begins with Yuppie, the narrator's from Montreal, and his dad has like a, a strange affection for Yuppie. And Bonnie Erickson, who we zoom in on, is an important character, but a bit of a secondary character in the way that they construct the episode. So... I mean, I loved listening to it. It had information about the origin of mascots, which I didn't know about. And then, you know, in terms of the Philly Fanatic, Yuppie, the San Diego Chicken, these are characters that I very much grew up with. Like, I'm born in 73, so this kind of early 80s, mid-80s phenomenon is, like, squarely in my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I remember all of these characters quite well but had not actually thought of who made them and how are they made and like what kind of business was that and what sort of person does that. So it was something that I discussed with my deputy editor at that time, Sam Hockley-Smith, who is now uh, 
fled for the greener pastures of New York Magazine, where he's the music editor. But I was like, hey, you know, I listened to this. I don't want to like do the exact thing that they did, but there's, I feel like there's something here for us. There's something, there's something here. And it also was a time when we were thinking a little, like Victory is a sports magazine, I think, you know, crossed with an art magazine, crossed with a men's magazine. And through our fifth issue, we had a quote unquote girl story, which started out as kind of like a sulky models in varsity jackets and ended with like naked ladies in Florida swamps um, <laughs> and got a little weird at the end of it. It was sort of like, this is a, a bit too far for us. And as the magazine evolved, I think it's been harder than it should be in some ways to find really strong female protagonists in sport and elsewhere. So that was something that, that contributed to it was like, oh, here's a story of someone who like designed Miss Piggy and the Philly fanatic. And then even in a podcast about mascots, it wasn't like she was shunted and not given her due, but maybe she was on for like two or three minutes of the podcast. So it felt like, okay, this isn't just like repeating what they would say. There's like a whole life of someone who's like a master in a particular field that will connect with the theme of the issue, be totally sport relevant and, you know, give us a strong woman creator that we're looking so, for. So having identified Bonnie Erickson as the, yeah. as the kind of main protagonist for your angle on the story, yeah. was it hard to track her down? Did you, that so this, kind of pure mechanic of magazine making, how do you find the woman and then? This is the part, this this part I'll be reporting more, more secondhand, but it mentions in the article that they, the mascot business, Bonnie Erickson and her husband, I believe Jim Harrison. So it's Erickson Harrison was the name of their mascot firm. And I think they were killing it for about 15, 20 years. And at a certain point, everyone who would possibly have wanted a mascot had a mascot and their business dried up. So they had to take down their website because they didn't want more inquiries. So there was not, you know, it wasn't just like a Google, oh, there's the website, contact, great. And Sam was in deep Google mode, like Google magazine mode, he told me today, which I don't even I don't even know how to search that way. But apparently there's some kind of sub search that you can do through Google for magazine articles. And he found a spin magazine article written by Mike Rubin, who had already contributed for us about mascots that mentioned Bonnie Erickson's name, reached out to Mike and Mike had a contact for her. And, you know, we were kind of off to the races from there. It turned out that she lives in New York and she lives in Park Slope. And she moved on to a job where she's like the head curator of the Henson Museum. I hope I'm getting that right. And she was going through her personal archives because she's designed Miss Piggy and she designed like Statler and Waldorf, the two hecklers. So Mm -hmm. she, she had a lot of relevant things for the museum. So she was in the middle of... And she just seems like uh, the type of person who keeps meticulous archives. So both Sam and Mike went to her house. And that was part of, you know, figuring out, like interviewing her was was part of it and getting the mm-hmm. story. And that, you so know, she, I, I'm kind of imagining a yeah. house full of kind of bits of mascots. And there's, there's an amazing part yeah. in, 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 the, uh, in the story where, 
the talk about uh, having to destroy a mascot and, and they didn't want it to sort yeah. of end up being kind of abused or misused. So yeah. They, they did, they actually cut it up. It's like getting rid of a body. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's the Yankees mascot, which is my team. It's a great part of the story. This sort of chapter of the, of the failed mascots and it's like the worst failure and it, you know, kind of crosses paths with George Steinbrenner, uh, Thurman Munson, Lou Pinella. It's like all of these factors which led it to be first relegated to the upper deck and then needed to be destroyed mm-hmm. so that, you know, no one would like find it in a dumpster and play pranks with it. But the way that she describes destroying it and how painful it is, you can see that like she otherwise would save everything. At one point in their business, they try to invent a generic mascot called Sport that could go to like any game. And we wanted to have sport at our launch party. And she didn't have, that costume was like not in good enough repair mm-hmm. um, to uh, to be at the party. But she had a blow up version of him, which required like a, a giant ventilator that took like a large part of our party space. But we did have, uh-huh. we had the blow up mascot uh-huh. of, of sport at, at the party. Mm-hmm. That to me was a particularly strange part of the story because it seems completely counter to the idea of having a mascot. The mascot is related to a single team, is part of, you know, its name, its uniform, everything relates to a team. The idea of a generic mascot is a kind of a, a perversion of the idea of a mascot. Isn't it's it? a very good point, and I think it's indicative that she's not actually a sports fan. Uh huh. Like that, she didn't make on a commission. But all the other mascots, she was commissioned by teams, and I think the process was directed by teams to a certain amount, and she has to put them in their team uniform, and sometimes it's related to, you know, the the Philadelphia Fanatic with a PH, so there's the identity is related to the team identity, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and as you rightly say, that's why people care about teams. And although at the same time, the San Diego chicken, even though he's associated with the Padres, also just like kind of went all over the place and was just like such a dynamic performer that he was, I guess, like welcome anywhere or okay. could make money going anywhere. So there there have been, uh-huh. and it's mentioned not in our story, but in the 99% Invisible podcast, which also drafts off this book about mascots, a longer book about mascots by a guy who was the New York Mets mascot about his name is Max Pitikin. He was the the clown prince of baseball. So that's more like when mascots were human. And he was a pitcher in the army during like the time when all, all the, you know, like Ted Williams, who's Hall of Fame baseball player, was also an incredible fighter pilot. He's like the real John Wayne, like, mm-hmm. you know, shot down 14 jets in Korea. But Pitikin pitched to Joe DiMaggio in some kind of army exhibition game and DiMaggio like just crushed an enormous home run and then Pitikin followed him around the bases Uh in kind of a you know clowny way and the audience loved it and then he sort of made a career being a baseball clown so in a way I guess it is possible to transcend a locality with a mascot but maybe not with a costumed mascot I don't Uh know or yeah, yeah. You, you talk about that Bonnie and her husband have closed down the mascot business. Yeah. There's a lovely kind of arc to the story of the kind of the rise and the fall mm. of that particular era. Are there mascots now? Yuppie became the mascot of the, so the 
Montreal Expos, and we don't we don't expect you to know this, but the the, <laughs> the, uh, the Montreal Expos became the Washington Nationals. Montreal lost their franchise, so UP was you know effectively homeless, and a French kind of logger Sasquatch would not necessarily have made sense mm-hmm. as the mascot for the Washington Nationals. Although these days being having funny orange hair would you fit in perfectly well in, in Washington. Um, <laughs> so he became the Montreal Canadiens, the hockey team mascot. So he just kind of like, he changed teams and the Philly fanatic is still the Phillies mascot. And that's the one that she's most famous for. And she made like a, like the, the nice thing about it, a rise and fall story for an artist is that they made money while the getting was good uh-huh. and they're not like penniless, you know, former mascot makers that are trying to make like one-off children's clothing now or something like they, she retained a lot of the rights to the, uh-huh. to okay. the fanatic. Okay. So she yeah. did quite well on it. Cool. Cool. Well, well, thank you for coming in. Let's uh, go off now and have a listen to Mike Rubin's piece about that golden era of mascots. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Master of Puppets by Mike Rubin from Victory Journal number 10. Bonnie Erickson may not be a household name to most sports fans, but she's probably done more to change fans' ballpark experience over the last four decades than anyone besides landmark free agency litigants Kurt Flood and Marvin Miller. With her husband and business partner Wade Harrison, Erickson added furry frivolity to the stadium landscape beginning in the late 1970s, eventually creating 16 mascot characters in all four major North American professional sports leagues. Harrison Erickson's mascots weren't baseball's first. That honor probably belongs to Mr. Matt, who dates back to the early 1960s. Nor were they the most famous. It's hard to top the notoriety of Ted Giannoulis as the San Diego Chicken, the foul-feathered rapscallion, whose anarchistic antics in the 1970s and 1980s induced numerous on-field run-ins with players and managers, as well as several off-field lawsuits. But the Harrison Erickson menagerie are among the most beloved of all mascots. Both the Philly Fanatic and Yuppie have been enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame and are certainly the most ubiquitous. Contemporary mascotry has combined a proven staple of children's television, a performer in a ridiculous full body suit, with the gentle tomfoolery of clowning, the silent lucidity of mime, and good old-fashioned hucksterism, creating a new performance genre, corporate vaudeville. Although team mascots flourished on the high school and college level in the years B.C., before chicken, the costume craze didn't really take off in the pro ranks until 1974 when Giannoulis wore a chicken suit to a San Diego Padres game for a radio promotion. Over the last four decades, mascots have multiplied like rabbits although few of Harrison Erickson's giant creatures belong to any recognizable film. With ever-increasing ticket costs, the onus has been on sports franchises to provide not just a competitive contest, but a full-fledged entertainment experience, hence the proliferation of enormous, silly-suited cheerleaders who not only kick sand on umpires and dance to Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part Two, but also act as goodwill ambassadors, visiting schools, hospitals, and the like. 
In the last year alone, the Philly Fanatic made more than 700 promotional appearances, ranging from charity walks and bar mitzvahs to a cameo on the ABC sitcom The Goldbergs and the inauguration of Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe. Baseball being very, very good to us, says Erickson, sitting in the couple's spacious Brooklyn Heights apartment, paraphrasing the classic Saturday Night Live character Chico Escuela. An original Charles Schultz sketch of Charlie Brown in pitching gear hangs on one wall near a framed drawing from Morris Sendak. Sent as a thank you for Harrison Erickson designing a set of Where the Wild Things Are toys. Erickson recently organized the mementos of the couple's prolific career into 20 archival boxes, stuffed with sketches, fabric swatches, construction specs, and slides. It's remarkable how consistently each finished product reflects Erickson's initial freehand drawing, no matter which medium she's working in. Storytelling is the most important part of everything, says Erickson. It's how we communicate with each other, whether you do it with a sock or a very complicated piece of puppetry or a costume. That's really what it is. It's just an assistance to help you tell that story. Raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, Erickson took art school classes as a teenager, crossing the river to Minneapolis each week to pick up the latest copy of The Village Voice. Entranced by the Greenwich Village she read about, In 1961, she left the University of Minnesota after her sophomore year to spend a summer in New York City and never came back, getting an apartment on McDougal Street. When a folk-singing pal from Minneapolis's dinky town neighborhood named Bob Dylan came to town, Erickson went next door to the Gaslight Cafe to see him play. We went out back to have a jay, she recalls, and promised each other we wouldn't tell anybody we were from Minnesota. Though she initially harbored plans to be an actress, Erickson soon focused on costuming. Beginning in 1963, she spent seven years working in off-Broadway and occasionally Broadway theater. In 1970, she heard from a friend that puppeteer Jim Henson was looking for a costume designer. Impressed by Erickson's life-size muslin female figures in vintage clothes, Henson offered her a job on the 1971 Kermit the Frog special, The Frog Prince. Under the tutelage of Henson's master puppet builder, Don Solin, Erickson learned to make costumes to hide the puppeteers. She carved figures out of blocks of foam, sculpting her features with scissors, and smoothing everything down with a belt sander. Eventually, she became head of the workshop and part of the original team for The Muppet Show, designing such characters as porcine diva Miss Piggy, balcony hecklers Stadler and Waldorf, and kind of blue saxophonist Zoot, based on Argentinian jazz musician Gatto Barbieri. Before The Muppet Show was picked up for production by ITV in England, Erickson became romantically involved with Harrison, a Sloan Kettering cancer researcher whose true passion was photography. When Erickson and the Hanson team relocated to London for the first season of The Muppet Show, Harrison left his job and went with her. A year later, the pair returned to New York to start their own business, setting up a studio on the corner of 17th Street and 5th Avenue, the newly christened Harrison Erickson Firm designed puppets for use in TV ads as well as toys before they got an unexpected call-up to the big leagues. The promotion department of baseball's Philadelphia Phillies had approached Henson looking to create a new mascot. 
Hansen steered the team to Harrison Erickson, who turned a short-term promotional campaign called Be a Philly Fanatic into a gig that's lasted for 37 years and counting. Erickson, who wasn't really a sports fan at the time, insists that she was unfamiliar with Giannullis' chicken. I wasn't aware of the game as much as I was aware of the fact that they must be coming to us for entertainment, she says. When they told me mascots, I went, oh, really? I don't know that I want that. That's not what I want to do. But then I realized what kinds of crowds would be seeing this. The Phillies gave Erickson carte blanche, and she drew on her experience developing toys for Henson to design a mascot with product licensing in mind. Building on the notion that a sports fanatic would need a megaphone, Erickson gave the creature a long snout with a protruding tongue as well as a backstory that the fanatic hailed from the Galapagos Islands. I love doing the abstract characters, where you couldn't identify it as a particular animal, says Erickson. I just like thinking of something more fantasy. A young Phillies front office intern, Dave Raymond, was chosen to fill the fanatic's oversized shoes. His mother was deaf, says Erickson, which helped make him particularly adept to gesturing and performing. The fanatic was to be the alter ego of the average fan. Like a superhero, the person in the costume was kept anonymous. We wanted to try to suspend disbelief that there was a human being in there, says Harrison. We want the Philly fanatic to be the Philly fanatic. We don't want you to think, hey, there's a guy running around in a big green costume. Philly's brass warned the couple that City of Brotherly Love fans were a tough crowd having once booed the Easter Bunny and, in the very same stadium, thrown snowballs at Santa Claus. After debuting on April 25, 1978, the Fanatic became a surprise success in terms of popularity and products, including T-shirts, jewelry, and even a Fanatic comic strip that ran in the Philadelphia Inquirer. The Fanatic brought $2 million in merchandise sales the first year of licensing alone. This was especially fortuitous for the fledgling company because Harrison Erickson owned the costume and leased it to the Phillies. They kept the licensing rights, received the merchandising money, and paid the team a royalty. They had offered Phillies executive Bill Giles the choice between paying $5,200 for both the fanatic costume and the character's copyright or purchasing just the costume alone for $3,900. Giles opted for only the costume, a move he would describe in his autobiography as the worst decision of my career. Five years later, he paid $250,000 for the Fanatic's copyright. Yippie, French for yippie, followed in 1979, and the Montreal Expo's mascot quickly became the only untouchable on that club's payroll. The cost-conscious team may have dealt away future Hall of Famers like Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, and Pedro Martinez, but their seven-foot-tall mascot with his couch potato belly and wildfire orange fur outlived the franchise itself. After the Expos moved to Washington, D.C. in 2004 to become the Nationals, Yuppie became the first free agent mascot and joined hockey's venerable Montreal Canadiens. By the early 1980s, Harrison Erickson's work was in high demand, and their roster of fuzzy friends expanded dramatically. It was really fun to see all of this happen, says Erickson. 
Then we started to get more and more teams, and it started to be hard to really oversee licensing or the legal parts. That became a whole other job in itself. So when people were interested in buying the copyrights and using us to set them up, to consult with them as they needed, that was the better way for us to work. The first mascot they sold was Yuppie, which led to the payday with the Phillies. After that, we sold them all up front, says Harrison. If you hired us, you bought everything, all in a pack. Harrison Erickson maintained complete creative control, designing the costume, choosing colors and fabrics, auditioning and training performers, even providing designs for the flyers announcing promotional events. They created owner's manuals on how to assemble and care for the costumes, illustrated with Polaroids. A Harrison Erickson costume took 12 weeks to make, including four weeks for design, meeting with team officials, and auditioning and training performers. Among the criteria for performers was an understanding of the relevant sport, dancing ability, enough strength to handle and wear the costume, a talent for creating a character, no criminal record, and a driver's license for traveling to appearances. We also preferred people who didn't smoke, says Erickson, because you just don't want that in the costume. Costumes were constructed from fake Icelandic sheepskin fur, foam, feathers, yarn, spandex, fleece, and plastic. In the early years, eyes were made from legs, egg-shaped pantyhose containers. Each costume had to be flexible enough to allow a performer to express himself, durable enough to hold up through at least 81 home games plus promotional appearances without any major repairs, yet be as light and cleanable as possible. Even so, the suits ended up weighing 35 to 40 pounds and tended to get pretty stinky. Harrison recommends spraying suits regularly with cheap vodka to fight the funk. It takes out the odors, he says. Free tip. We've done some research. The production values that Henson had demanded proved to be an advantage. Jim really inculcated everyone who worked there with a very high level of expectation, says Harrison. I think we brought that to this mascot idea. We just said, it doesn't have to be this. It can be this. We created what has become the modern mascot world, rather than papier-mâché heads on people with pajamas. We made characters that had lives and performed and were made into real merchandise. Their influence in the burgeoning field was enormous. Some of their former staffers went on to design other mascots, like the Pittsburgh Pirates Parrot, while many of the fanatics' evolutionary descendants borrowed the pear shape that Harrison Erickson favored. Besides the shape's practical advantages, it keeps the performer cooler by moving the suit away from the body, allowing air to circulate. Erickson points out that it has comedic value as well. It's so funny when it moves. It's just hilarious. You, you can't walk without having it look funny. It just does its own work for you. Despite their successes, however, they suffered their share of defeats. You don't always hit a home run, says Harrison. Indeed, Erickson's boxes reveal an alternate history of mascotry, with binders containing preliminary sketches of unfulfilled mascots for the Minnesota Twins, San Francisco Giants, San Diego Padres, and Chicago Cubs. One proposal, a giant rodent called Rink Rat for the New York Islanders, is fully fleshed out, 
We made the whole presentation, and they signed a contract to build the costumes, says Harrison. Then the team got sold, and the new owner didn't want one. As Harrison Erickson see it, three elements determine the success of a mascot character. A good design, a good performer, and the support of the team, says Harrison. None of those three things is easy. Nobody really executed the program as well as Philadelphia. The Phillies, they got it 100%. Other clubs proved to be somewhat less supportive. In 1981, Erickson presented the Chicago White Sox with two different characters, figuring they'd pick between them. Instead, the White Sox chose to go with both. Thus were born Ribby and Rhubarb, who lasted for seven turbulent years on the South Side. The duo were never accepted by White Sox fans because they had unseated the team's unofficial mascot, Andy the Clown, who had performed in the Comiskey Park stand since the early 1960s. After considerable abuse, much of it from children, Ribby and Rhubarb were given their unconditional release in 1988. There were other extinctions. The Philadelphia 76ers' Big Shot, the Houston Rockets' Booster, and the New Jersey Nets' Duncan of New Jersey. One NBA team met with Harrison Erickson, then used their presentation sketches to fashion a mascot without the couple's participation. But by far, the most unpleasant experience was their three-year stint working with the New York Yankees. In the wake of the Fanatics' instant success, the Yankees wanted to bring a mascot to the Bronx. Yankees front office executives approved Erickson's mascot design but warned they'd need to show it to owner George Steinbrenner in person. Unaware of the owner's tyrannical reputation, Erickson argued with the boss about the color of the mascot's stripes. When they came out of the meeting, says Erickson, they were told, you shouldn't have talked to George like that. We thought it was over, and that was the end of it. Surprisingly, the Yankees commissioned a costume, but the club soon made the unfortunate decision to hold a fan contest to name the character. The winner, alas, was Dandy. Then, on July 10, 1979, shortly before Dandy was to debut, Yankees outfielder Lou Pinella took umbrage at the on-field antics of Seattle Kingdom guest star the San Diego Chicken, threw his mitt at the bird, and fumed to the press that mascots shouldn't be allowed to clown around out there where the players are trying to make a living. In the days that followed, Steinbrenner defended his player and echoed those sentiments, knowing that the next week his own mascot would be debuting at Yankee Stadium, Harrison says. Erickson had designed Dandy as an old-fashioned character with a handlebar mustache. But the mascot's resemblance to walrus mustachioed Yankees catcher Thurman Munson, who died that season in an August 1979 plane crash, may have further unsettled team officials. For whatever reason, Dandy was banished to the upper deck. We'd go to games, and we never even saw it ourselves, says Erickson. The Yankees wanted to renew the three-year lease, says Erickson. But the couple would agree only on the condition that a safety officer accompany the performer around the rowdy stadium. When the Yankees refused, citing cost-cutting concerns, Harrison Erickson benched Dandy. There was no way I was going to put somebody at risk in that costume, says Erickson. There were people who were very violent at those games. The costume was kept in storage for a while, 
but in 2000, the couple finally decided to dispose of Dandy. Simply throwing it away risked having a dumpster-diving furry find it, however, so they destroyed the costume by cutting it to shreds themselves, an experience Erickson describes as terrible. After 15 years of relying on the often fickle devotion of team executives, the couple opted to become their own bosses. In 1993, they joined with Dave Raymond, the original fanatic performer, and formed a spin-off company called Acme Mascots. The idea was that their new character, Sport, a raffish entertainer in a plaid jacket, would be able to perform at a greater variety of venues because he was unaffiliated with a specific team. It was a stab at free agency, but Sport could only get bookings to perform at minor league stadiums. We did that because we could make a living doing it, says Harrison. It really was never the goal of working the minor leagues. It was just a way to get from one place to the next. Unfortunately, it didn't work. The small town barnstorming continued for a few years, but then the couple parted ways with Raymond and Acme mascots came to an end. Raymond still works in the mascot world, consulting and coaching via his mascot boot camp. Sport is the one mascot character the couple still own, though the costume is currently boxed in storage. There are about 100 professional sports teams in the United States and Canada, says Harrison, and by the year 2000, all of them who wanted to have a mascot had one. If they didn't have their own, they didn't really want one. That was pretty much the end of our market. Erickson was fine with the timing of the end of their mascot career, In the late 1990s, she was working as a consultant to Sesame Street, serving as creative director for product development. She and Harrison decided to give up their Manhattan studio. Erickson has spent most of the last decade as the executive director of the Jim Henson Legacy, the organization founded after Henson's death, setting up Muppet film retrospectives, arranging exhibitions, and preparing for the upcoming opening of two permanent Henson installations one at the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, and the other, a new wing at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York. As far as mascots go, Erickson and Harrison still consult with the Phillies and help the team take care of the fanatic costume, but they've taken down their website to avoid getting offers for new work. According to Erickson, seven of their creations are still running around in MLB, the fanatic, the NHL, Yuppie, the NBA, Washington's G-Wiz and Orlando's Stuff the Magic Dragon, the NFL, Jacksonville's Jackson DeVille and Kansas City's KC Wolf, and Japanese baseball, slyly of the Hiroshima Toyo Carp. It's amazing to me, though, that any of these characters that we did have lasted as long as they have, says Erickson. I did a lot of them, and I'm proud of the work that I did. I still find it funny that I go places and people say, here's Bonnie Erickson, and she did Miss Piggy, and she's done blah, blah, blah. And people say, didn't I hear that you did the Philly Fanatic? And I'm like, yeah, I did. And they say, oh, that's awesome. I think if you can make people laugh and you can entertain people, how much better could life get? At Mag Culture, we love magazines. To hear more about what we do, visit our website, magculture.com. This podcast is presented by WeTransfer Studios and MagCulture. Visit wetransfer.com slash thisworks to see more of our creative collaborations.